Why that is healthy? Why is that important? The podcast is called Why is that important? Hey there, and welcome to Why Is That Important, where regular people come for interesting ideas and perhaps a little debate. I'm your host, Joe Wenger, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Martin. Hello, everyone. And, uh, well, this is the final week of our debates about politics, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little sad to see it go, not gonna lie. Yeah, it's, me too. I've really enjoyed these. I have too. And, you know, it's funny, even just thinking about it, like, now and looking back, it's I expected us to get to get a little more heated or like disagree a little bit more and and we do but it was it was good. I mean it was it's the kind of thing that you don't get to see very much on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, especially for the fact that Brian and Casey they really don't know each other at all. So Jim they didn't, Jim and Casey? Did I say Brian? Uh-huh. <laughs> Jim and Casey don't really know each other at all. So they like no reason. They'd have no personal connection to be nice to each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's very true. So, I mean, we'll, let's just go ahead and head right in there. And uh, here's our, our final conversation, at least at this point, uh, about election reform. All right, everybody. Welcome back. Let's talk about politics. Uh, before we started uh, officially recording... We started saying, well, I didn't say anything, but Casey apparently knows that there's something going on right now in the current political realm that speaks directly to election reform, which is what we're talking about. So why don't we start with that, Casey? Lay, lay it out for us, and, and then we'll, we'll kind of get into the meat of the, of the evening. Sure. Well, there are – this is all um, breaking pretty recently, but on the – there's one story about the the DNC where um, Donna Brazil just published an article in Politico saying, confirming essentially that the DNC rigged the election for Clinton against Sanders, and in fact that Clinton had uh, uh, the Clinton campaign had taken on like ten million dollars of the DNC's debt prior to the primary. Uh, in exchange for control of uh, certain aspects of the DNC finances. So that's a pretty huge <laughs> breaking story. Um, and then on the other yeah. hand, wow. we have uh, we have the story breaking of um, uh, apparently Jeff Sessions was uh, – knew about certain meetings, uh, offers from the Russian government through, uh, uh, oh, the, the coffee boy that they're talking about. Well, essentially, things are have gotten um, on a number of different fronts today and a number of s- small news stories. The, uh, the, the Russian smoke is, is turning into possibly Russian fire. So there's, there's a lot certainly- going on that's very... Well, and the Supreme Court case that's going to be taken up in this recently begun uh, session about the Wisconsin uh, voter districts, there's now finally a method to determining if gerrymandering has given a party an outsized control. And based on that method, a lawsuit has been brought and it's going to the Supreme Court this session. So we're going to find out shortly if the Supreme Court thinks that that method is a, legitimate, and B, 
useful for determining if someone's cheating. So we have to wait a little bit more for that because Supreme Court sessions take a while, but the rest of the news is very breaking. Yeah. Well, yeah, and depending when you listen to this, we, we could already know about some of this stuff. Huh. Yeah. Very that curious is... to see how this all uh, this all plays out. And if you live in Pennsylvania, it might be good to know that Pennsylvania also has a pending lawsuit about the way the redistricting lines were drawn in 2011 that is basically yes. being attached to the Wisconsin lawsuit, or, or at least some people want it to be, and some people are like, no, it's totally different. Some people are like, no, it's totally the same. So it has far-reaching consequences, as most Supreme Court decisions do. That's, I guess that's why they're supreme. No, that's not why they're supreme. <laughs> I know. All right. So uh, let's they love go ahead and get pizza. into... <laughs> that's what I was thinking. It's about the pizza. That's why they're the Supreme Court. All right. So let's uh, let's go ahead and break into this. Um, so, Andrew, do you want to lay out kind of just a general framework of how our republic of the United States works with the election? And then we can kind of go into... Um, you know, maybe some some of the downsides or our thoughts on on all of that, sure. and how then how we think how we think we can maybe change some stuff. Sure. So as Joe mentioned, the concept is electoral reform. Um, I think actually I just read that fifty seven percent of Americans think that their vote doesn't count, um, which is kind of terrifying. Uh, so with that concept as the basis, like what can we do to make more people believe that their vote counts and matters? we probably need to start with an idea of how the system works. And so from a presidential standpoint, when you get to the general election, we all know about the fun of the electoral college and, you know, winner take all states and first person to do better than 270 electoral college votes wins. Although technically the electoral college could change their votes from what the way their states voted, but that doesn't really happen to any significant degree. Um, So basically what it boils down to is small states Uh, So the Electoral College is made up of your state gets one vote per member of Congress. So you have two senators, uh, everybody has two senators, and then your representatives are based on population with a minimum of one. Uh, So low population states have an outsized influence uh, as of percent, not necessarily in uh, absolute value terms. So California, New York have by far, and, and Texas have by far the most electoral college votes. However, any given vote cast in that state um, counts as a much smaller sliver of an, of an electoral college vote than, say, a Wyoming or a Montana or a Rhode Island, New Hampshire, those kind of places where, like, take Wyoming. You have about 250,000 people, and you get three electoral college votes. Whereas compared to, like, Pennsylvania has 12 million people, and what do we get? I think we get... 17, 19, I think we get 19 electoral college votes. Um, So, you know, it's fewer than 100,000 people per electoral college vote in Wyoming, and it's almost a million people per electoral college vote in Pennsylvania. So you get a concept of just, it's an, you know, an order of magnitude. A Pennsylvania vote in the presidential election is one-tenth as powerful as a Wyoming vote. Uh, So there's a bit of a misbalance or yeah misbalance is probably the best word to say uh there so that's that's presidential politics and then you boil it down to uh the 
Congress, every state gets two votes, or it gets two senators, which is pretty straightforward. It's state boundaries. They don't change. They don't change based on population. But the House, that's where we get the fun thing called gerrymandering, which is actually named after an old uh, governor of Massachusetts uh, who, instant well, was the first to do it in such an extreme way that it raised people's ire. And basically, that's redrawing districts. You can crack them or you can pack them. So basically, you by cracking districts, you draw the districts in such a way that all the districts have a small piece of the opposing vote, small enough that you can assure yourself a win. And packing is where you lump all of the opposing vote into a single district so you can guarantee that you'll win all the rest of the districts. Um, so it basically depends on how close the voting is. Uh, so let's take Wisconsin as an example. If I remember correctly, the Democrats got 53% of the vote, but Republicans control 59% of uh, the elected positions. So as you can see, there's an a imbalance between who, who's being voted for and who's actually in power. And so that's that's a result of gerrymandering. And then each state has its own electoral systems, and they vary widely from California's, which has things like open primaries, and uh, I don't know, what, what the, whatever the opposite of first-past-the-post voting is in certain mayoral elections and stuff like that. Um, so we're, if, if there's certain states that have unique systems, we might talk about them, but we're largely going to be talking about national politics. So that'll basically boil down to the House of Representatives and the president, because that's that's a lot of the power and a lot of the changes would affect those positions most drastically. So, Okay. All right. So uh, real quick, uh, Jim, would you generally consider yourself in favor of the, the current system or do you do you feel like reform is potentially needed? Uh, I I think before you're talking just the, the election process or yeah or mm-hmm. uh, campaigns like I, I'm getting um, when I first read it I was thinking we were talking about uh, you know campaign restrictions but it sounds more like we're talking about just the process well I think I think they're all kind of lumped in together but I'm I'm specifically for this question um, I'm talking about just the election process in general yeah I to a lot of people i've served as the uh okay can i throw a title out there because it yeah yeah special title uh judge of elections <laughs> jim's important jim's important in palmyra <laughs> he knows I'm things the only, i'm the only guy willing to sign up for that one uh <laughs> he's the one that pads the ballot box <laughs> yeah no i can assure you that that palmyra borough gets a fair election uh <laughs> that there's no there's no way I, the the way i could tamper with it i guess would be as if i because I have seen this happen when you just you try to deliberately misinform people, you know, like saying, "Oh, if you okay. just pick this, you just pick that." But I know that's never in the twelve years I've served on this uh, this local borough, I've never seen anything to even come close to it. So three people just went to jail in Philly for doing that kind of thing. Really? Yeah. Well, and they apparently they were also watching what people would vote for, and then like if they were going to select the candidate they didn't like, they would heckle them or something. I, I don't know exactly how it worked, but it was they called it voter fraud and intimidation. There were like six counts and three per people or something like that. I don't. 
Anyway, Google the details. We'll tell you all about it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, so, I don't have a big opinion on any real critique on it. Though. To answer your question, it's okay. Uh, it's a great system. It was developed with uh, some really, you know, uh, I don't know, innovative ideas. There was it, there's a there's so many great things that it came from. It definitely needs some adjustment. I can't even suggest what the correct adju- adjustment would be. Uh, you know, so as far as it goes, the the actual process, I'm fine with it. it. It seems to work. It seems fair to me, and I'm very involved in. And you know, every election day, twice a year, I'm always from soup to nuts. I'm going through the whole all the motions as a voter and as the I, I run the polls at this one uh, precinct. So that's my two cents. Okay. All right, and Casey, how about you? Um, I I would say uh, that the system is largely broken. Um, I think there are a lot of things about the way we run elections that are um, either outdated or just ill-conceived. And the system we currently have um, almost mathematically necessitates a two-party system that becomes increasingly polarized. That's just part of the design of how it works. And and some of that is truly by design. And some of it, I think, is the product of this having been, this voting system having been designed in a time, at least the roots of it being designed in a time when the fastest way to convey a vote tally was to put a person on a horse and send them riding days to the Capitol and, and hope they don't get lost or sick or attacked. Um, and you know, that's not how elections work anymore. So it's, it's not altogether shocking to me that, uh, some, some things that, that worked, that made sense in the past, no longer make a lot of sense. Okay. All right. And how about you, Andrew? Uh, I, I guess broadly speaking, no one starting from a blank slate would design what we have today. Um, so to me, that means, you know, if we're that far from anything that would be designed, it's clearly in need of improvement. Um, to kind of counterweight a little bit of what Casey said, there are a lot of countries that have, uh, quite a few parties and they look at our two party system with jealousy and because we don't have to form coalitions and all that kind of stuff. We have, you know, what we call big tent parties are supposed to, you know, be able to encompass and, and account for a wide variety of opinions within, you know, the basic frameworks of left and right. However, I would also say that there are serious issues with that. And it's very difficult for a third party to become established, even as Casey pointed out, the two, you know, the two heavyweight parties are going to slide off the center, you know, if you think of it kind of as a mountain, they're going to slide down opposite sides of that mountain away from the moderates. And it's really hard to put a new party back at that peak again, which, you know, inevitably is going to slide again. But ideally, you would just keep replacing it with another moderate party that would pull the moderate elements from the two existing parties and that the previous party would die out, which has happened a couple of times um, in our history. But I would also agree in some ways with Jim that I think our voting system is has a lot of integrity to it, like the, the voting process does, but I don't necessarily believe that... Um, I think we've gotten to the point where 
the elected officials are better at picking their voters than the voters are at picking their elected officials. And I think that's what needs to change. Instead, we're not so much a representative democracy anymore. Thank you. I didn't make that up. I totally stole it. I just don't know from whom or else I would credit them. We're not so much a representative democracy as we are uh, a ruling class that knows how to effectively subjugate their voters without the voters realizing it. So I, I say change is, change is needed, but I don't want to scrap the whole system. Okay. How about you, Joe? I don't know that I have an opinion. I, I'm more, I've been more like sitting back as of recent uh, and just kind of pondering, you know, kind of like the point of an electoral college. Like, well, like why does that even exist right now when it seems to me that it would be logical uh, to to be a democracy, like to actually like direct popular know, vote. It, yeah, um, I don't, I don't understand the need for that, and it kind of like you talked about the. Uh, it seems like the people who are in the elite class, so to speak, get to speak for, um, get to speak for everyone without ever ever having to actually be in the position of 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 everyone. I mean, there's always going to be examples of of people who have come, you know, from, from nothing to the point where they're in places and positions of power. But it, it feels like the system kind of <clears throat> kicks out people who are very similar to the ones who are there before them. That, But other than that, I don't know that I have, have much of an opinion. But the, the fact that you think that the system doesn't represent its constituency, it represents a certain type of person who makes it within that system... Yeah. demonstrates that it doesn't have your faith in representing your beliefs. So to me, yeah, I, I say clearly that's broken. And I think this, this past election was like, was so incredibly, um, it, it pointed to that tremendously. I was thinking through one of the debates as, as Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are talking about their roots and they're acting like, like they've come from these like, uh, p- humble origins from there. Yeah, and I'm like, you guys, neither one of you has ever had to deal with, with anything that like than the that the rest of us are dealing with. So can you please just stop with the BS and be like, yeah, we've had money. <laughs> like, Donald Trump on. and his small million dollar loan from his dad. Yeah, <laughs> and Hillary Clinton and her very elite education. I think yeah. a lot of people are. Disenfranchised by this past election on both sides of the aisle. Absolutely, I, I, and I think that's why this is an important conversation to have. So, what is the? Can you? Can anybody? Can give me the purpose of the electoral college? Like, what is? Like, why? Why? I mean, there's probably some reason they were trying to solve some sort of problem. Yeah. Um, yep. They certainly were, and Casey will hit the nail on the head in the fact that it was very difficult to communicate the will of the voters to a central location with any kind of speed or frequency. So the idea was that basically the state voted and decided who as a state they wanted as president. Um, And some things about the electoral college have changed. There was a time when the president and vice president were elected separately. They were not a a single ticket. So you could have, you could have a president from one party and a vice president from another party. Um, I think that'd be great. In fact, that is still a possibility. 
possibility if the Electoral College ties, because the Senate resolves one of the ties and the House resolves another one. So it is technically possible still to get. And and that's another purpose of the Electoral College. Um, However, the reason you do not want that under any circumstances is because now there's an incentive for the vice president to bump off the president that's far stronger than just personal ambition. Now it's a political thing. And so even if he has no, like, put it this way, if Hillary Clinton were the vice president right now, there'd be a lot of Democrats, uh, there would be a lot of far leftist people who would be doing research on best assassination plots. And if, if you switched that, if you switch that, the far right would be doing the exact same thing. And that's not a position we want to be in. In fact, there's a lot of people that say the Speaker of the House should not be in line in the line of succession, nor should the President pro temp of the Senate either, because both of those could have political motivations to bump off the people in front of them. It should just be cabinet members. It should be president, vice president, and then cabinet members on down because they're all selected by the person who was selected by the people. Where currently, if the president and vice president are both incapacitated, now we have someone who was selected by a single district, a single district out of, what, 435 districts in the United States? So basically, Wisconsin's, what is it, 5th district that Paul Ryan comes from, I think, could choose the president if the if the president and vice president are some way incapacitated. And that's not representative of the will of the people. That's representative of the will of, I don't know, half a million Wisconsins. So, But wouldn't a cabinet member be representative of the will of one person? Well, it's, the, it's representative of the will of the person who is representative of the people. Does that make sense? So we say, okay, we appointed that guy president. We trust him. And so the, the, the two... That's in theory, that's what the election says. And so the idea then would be that if the first two guys get bumped off who were elected, we should at least have somebody that that elected official would like to have president. Not somebody that some much smaller electorate would like to have as some other position. So so the other thing Electoral College did, if you came to ties and those kind of things, and and the difficulty in communicating back to the voters, it allowed them to resolve ties locally. Once everybody got to Washington, D.C., and you had your the meeting of the Electoral College, you could actually just, everything would be resolved in a relatively short period of time. You wouldn't have to go back to the states and say, well, what about? Does that make any sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was the original intention. But it once Telegraph was invented, basically, it became very outmoded and unnecessary. Um, it would radically change politics in the United States if you did a popular vote because suddenly California's Republicans would begin to matter, as would Texas Democrats and everyone else. Basically, if you were lived in a strong red or strong blue state and you're the opposite party, currently your vote doesn't matter at all. There's basically yeah. no point in living there as, from a political standpoint. Um, and that would suddenly start to matter. And so you would actually see Democrats campaigning in places like Texas or Georgia or, you know, anywhere anywhere between the coasts, essentially. And you would see Democrats a- actually visiting the middle of the country. <laughs> the heels of this election that, that you would say that, though, think about that. Because the, the people, we just switched three states. Three states that were voting uh, blue states switched to red. So if those people, like what you're saying, if, they, if it doesn't matter, it does, because obviously it showed up this election. No, you, you actually make you make my you make my point for me. 
the voters that mattered wound up being about 250,000 voters spread across three states. Nobody else really mattered because their state was basically already baked in. Every state should be in play. Every vote should be in play. Like, so what does California have? 40 million people, something like that? And 35 million of them are Democrats? Those 5 million Republican votes in that state are worthless. There's no, there's no reason for a Republican ever to set foot, at, from a national politics standpoint, anywhere in California. And the same is true for Republicans in Texas. I mean, Texas actually has a Democratic history, so there's actually some sense that, you know, that's changed over time, but that's a different story. But the fact that just a few changes, a few vote total changes in Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, and Michigan basically swung the election says that, you know, we went from going, you know, 50.1% and 49.9 to 50.1-49.9 the other way. But the Electoral College went from like 60-40 one way to 60-40 the other way. So those that tiny swing in, a, in voters had a giant swing in Electoral College, and that's not representative. So that's why we're diverging from the representative democracy we're supposed to be. Does that make sense, Jim? Yeah, that was actually, that's a great explanation. So, so if you had a, a, put it this way, in California, if you went from 5 million Republicans to 10 million Republicans, that's 5 million Republican votes, but it won't make a hill of beans a difference on the national stage. But in Pennsylvania, going from, I don't know, what I think there's like 4 million or 6 million voters or something like that in Pennsylvania, going from like, you know, 5.8 million Republican or uh, 3.2 million Democrats and 2.8 million Republicans, and you switched that. And all of a sudden, it switched the entire state, even though it was only a couple hundred thousand votes. So that's why direct popular election of presidents, in, my, in a lot of people's opinion, makes a lot of sense. But that would require a constitutional amendment. Okay, right, I was going to say, like, what are the things that keep us from doing that? Small states. Small states keep us from doing that. I think one of the that's I think that's one of the biggest myths about the electoral college is that it's good for small states, um, and intuitively it seems like it should be because like the the voters are mathematically um, their vote counts more in Wyoming than in California significantly more um, if you're in a smaller state then you get a, a larger proportion of the total impact but in practice. That's not actually how it plays out because in order to win the elections, no one is actually focusing on the small states. They're focusing on the swing states. Um, almost in this past election, uh, I, I think the in most elections you look at, the vast majority of um, campaign events are happening in just a small number of states. So it's not really doing anything to bring the attention to the small states. In fact, really what it's doing is ensuring that politicians will eliminate some states from their focus. Whereas if you had a true popular vote, then uh, a candidate would be responsible for garnering as much of the entire country's um, population. Right now, you mentioned that you know uh, Republicans in California or Democrats in Texas that their votes don't really matter. But critically, Democrats in California and Republicans in Texas, their votes don't really matter in practice either because 
in in the game that has become uh, our two party election, the only thing that you really need to fight for are those swing states. That's absolutely right. That's that's a very good point, and that's why those you know if five million people in California or Texas d- decide to change their parties, nothing really happens, and that's that's not representative of the will of the people at that point. If you go to direct election, basically the power brokers become the most populous states because that's where it makes sense to disseminate your message. You're going to get it to as many people as possible. Uh, the small states have as much power as they're going to get under the system. I will agree with Casey that they don't have a lot, but anything you change decreases the amount of influence they have. Swing states currently have the most influence, but small states are capable of becoming swing states. If you go to direct election, uh, large states will have the most influence, and small states, it's very difficult for a low population state to become a large population state. So so while he's right in that small states don't really have, they don't have a lot of influence in absolute terms, they have the most influence in relative terms of any practical or any imaginable, well, I shouldn't say imaginable, I guess we could have a system where it's like the fewer people you have, the more votes you get, but any any system that might exist, and this one currently does, and so maintaining the status quo is how they're going to get, get garner as much power as possible. Even scaling the popular vote directly to um, the size of the state you're in would be a better system than we have now. I think even if you explicitly said, all right, if you're in Wyoming, your vote counts five times as much, that's still better than our current system. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, but doing doing that is, I mean, it's basically just slipping a mathematical, a, a slight mathematical function inside the uh, popular, direct popular vote. Um, where the system we have now, I mean, I guess you could, yes, you can write a mathematical function for it, but it's not very elegant. Um, because of the whole Senate, this basically the way the Senate works, but that's a separate constitutional issue. But I forget who asked why it's. I think Joe, you asked why it's still in place. Like who benefits from the electoral yeah. college? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the people who are elected by it benefit from the electoral college because it makes the number of voters they have to actually be responsible to much, much fewer. And other than that, I don't think anyone really benefits. Donald Trump benefits. George Bush benefits. People who play the game benefit from all of the rules. Hayes benefited in the disputed Hayes-Tilden election of 1876. This is now the fourth time that the fourth time that the popular vote um, has failed to be accurately reflected in the uh, um, electoral college vote to the point where someone won the popular vote and lost the election four times. That's a, a that's like a seven percent failure rate. It's about nine, but yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I was just like four out of forty-four <laughs> would be would be basically be one in eleven, which would be what. Well, it's not 44 elections. Yeah, some of them it's, have multiple elections. That's true. That's true. That's a very good point. No, you're right. How many elections? Anyway, <laughs> now you got me doing math. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's fine. I'm trying to figure this out. 
should be pretty okay. straightforward, right? So then, right, so then, what would like it's if, an if, unacceptably high failure rate for something as important as the leader of the free world? <laughs> but you have to remember, the government is okay with a high failure rate. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so in an ideal world, wave a magic wand, like how, how would you guys say that it should be? So that's a big question. Um, I don't know that anybody has an answer to that. And I think a better question would be what changes could be made that might make it better because it's, it's really hard to prove the counterfactual. It's really hard to say if we had this system, it would be better. Um, and I think, well, there are, I think there are certain systems that we can say objectively would be better. I don't think we necessarily know which system would be best, but I think there are certain improvements that we can point to and step back objectively and say, yes, that is better. Uh, yes, that better being more representative of the will of the people as a whole. That's what we're using as a rubric for better. We're not, we're not looking to politically better situations, if that makes sense. Correct. Right. And one of them is obviously direct election. Um, another one of them is actually a system where uh, there's a term for it, which I can't come up with right now. So if you want to Google it, listener, please do. Instead of picking one person, you actually rank them. Um, mm-hmm. And so in a pool where you have, especially if you have more than two, if you have you know five, six, seven, then it starts to really matter who's coming in second and third because if you come in you know let's say let's say first is split up evenly among five different people right so everybody gets 20% of the vote in first place if one of those guys gets second on every single list that he's not first on he's going to be he's he's everyone's first or second choice why wouldn't you want that guy in power does that make sense mm-hmm. but currently we we have a system where the guy that wins is often most people's close to the bottom choice because with the primary system, you wind up selecting somebody that is only the majority choice of a couple voters. I shouldn't say a couple voters, a couple States voters, namely Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and all those fun first couple of weeks States every, every four years. And they basically determine who's going to be on the ballot and then everyone that didn't vote for those people in the primaries or doesn't vote for the person who wins winds up not wanting that person to be president. Like take Donald Trump, for instance, 43% of the, uh, 47% of the popular vote, right? But in the primaries, he was only gaining 40% of the vote. So 40% of 40% or, or even, well, let's call it 50%, 40% of 50% is less than 25%. That's about, it's 20% basically. So 20% of the people, when polled, when given the choice between either Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump or Donald Trump and all the other Republican uh, um, contenders, only 20% of the people wanted Trump. One in five people in this country think Trump is the right person to be president. That's not representative of the will of the people. If you had a system where everybody goes into the general election, nope, ditch the primaries, and you rank them, it also forces people to be kind. You can't be mean. You can't call the other person's voters idiots because you want them to select you as their second or third choice. That's a really good point. And San Francisco mayoral elections have done that and have drastically seen a huge, huge drop-off in attack ads. I mean, if I... Hmm. 
basically, if Casey, if I want to get Casey's vote as number two, I know he's not going to pick me as number one because he loves Joe Wanger. He's Joe Wanger all the way. I'm not going to go out and say, everybody who votes Joe Wanger is a total retard. You know what I mean? That's just offensive. Not just because of the fact they use the R word, but because now I'm lumping him in with people that I don't think are capable of making good choices. I want to go out there and say, you know what? Joe has some great ideas. Here's some things that I think would make his ideas better. And these are my ideas. And then maybe you'll get him. I'll, I'll get Casey as a number two. So, and we could all and do this with a is, lot less attack ads. <laughs> well, yeah. I just think in general that 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 would be a refreshing change if we if it how it played out. That's for sure. And you you can punish people by putting them at the bottom of your list. Currently, you punish everyone you don't choose. So I, it's a good point that it's not just about switching to direct um, direct elections. So that's what we're talking about now is the difference between... Um, so the voting system we use is called first past the post, which is just whoever's, whoever gets the most... Um, whoever gets the most wins. But the problem is that that system, it's, it is essentially a mathematical certainty that that divides into not only a two-party system, but a two-party system where there's a strong incentive for each party to pull their voter base farther out to the extremes. Um, so that's, even if, you, even if you switch to direct voting, being able to switch to uh, another voting system, the the voting system you're you're describing, um, well, there are, there are several different ways to do that. But one of the ones that I was looking at recently is the single transferable vote, um, and the way that one works is so there are some systems where if they count up all the votes, um, and let's say there are five candidates, and then once they count up all the first place votes. Votes, they take the one with the lowest um, number of number of votes and they add those votes. Uh, whoever those voters second place was, they distribute it out. And so they keep doing that until someone gets the majority of the votes. That's one system. There's another one called single transferable vote that um, it works if you've got one region that's trying to select more than one representative so this wouldn't apply to the presidential election but it would apply to the um, uh, house of representatives which would it basically it would look the same except that in addition if one politician had uh, if a candidate had extra votes then those second place voters would be um, those voters would have their second place vote redistributed as well so not only would you not be um penalized for voting for like a third party candidate, you wouldn't be penalized for voting for um, a popular candidate. That's, that's a really interesting idea. So that, that worked for like school boards and stuff like that too, where it's like pick four out of eight kind of thing. Yeah. And then if, uh, and you can rank as far down the list as you want and you just stop when you've run out of people that you want. Um, <laughs> That's a good point. Then you don't you don't have to, you know, you don't have to choose between your least favorite and your second least favorite and decide which one's which. You can just say, I don't like either of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, I, I, I would imagine that this uh, election would have turned out very, very differently. Um, 
I mean, not not just the the runoff um, in, in the end between Clinton and Trump, but if the entire election process were set up to use something like, uh, well, something that's not first past the post that, yeah. that inevitably breaks down into increasingly partisan po- politics, I think we would have been looking at a very, very different election. Well, the other question then is open primaries with the runoff being between the two highest vote getters, which I know California is either toyed with or implemented. So the idea there is uh, the minority party can become a kingmaker. So, you know, take a, a heavily Republican district in Texas, right? Um, in during, normally, currently during the primaries, you have three people running for the Republican seat and two running for the Democratic. And the, the guys running for the Republican seat need to appeal primarily to the primary voters. <laughs> it's funny how that worked out. Um, because those are the voters who are going to select who goes into the general election. And the general election is going to be between, you know, a Republican and a Democrat. And 80% of the votes in the district are going to be Republican. So really winning the primary is winning the general. Um, but with an open system, what happens is that anybody can vote for anybody. So the Democrats in this situation, knowing that it's going to be a Republican, can strategically vote for the most moderate Republican. And, and similarly, uh, Republicans in heavily Democratic districts can vote for the most moderate Democrat, basically saying, you know, holding their noses and saying, if we have to have somebody from the other party, we would like to have somebody from the other party that at least th- thinks we're human. Does that make sense? Yeah, but who's voting, who's voting in the primary for the other party? You can't, you can't do that. You, in closed primaries, you can't do that. In open primaries, anybody can vote for anybody. Oh, I, I would be oh, curious to see some statistics on of of members who vote in opposite primaries. What's their motivation, and are they actually voting for the most moderate candidate of the other party, or are they voting for the most clownish candidate of the other party in in hopes that it'll improve their chances in the general? That's an interesting question. Uh, my wife and I split our vote in the primary, even though we generally vote the same way in the in the general, basically so that we have a say in in both of who's determined uh, in the general election. Now, obviously, we also have the power of our primary vote, basically assuming that we always vote the exact same way, which I don't know if that's fair or not. I don't exactly know how she votes. Um, but the the concept there being, you know, we don't want anybody on the ballot that we didn't have a say in whether we wanted them on the ballot or not. The nice thing about getting away from a first past the post system is that you could really eliminate primaries altogether, which I think are arguably a big part of what's wrong with our, what's driving a lot of the vitriol in our uh, political discourse. Absolutely. If you can, if you can have a system where parties can run multiple candidates, like a, a, a system that redistributes votes um, for candidates that that are eliminated because they didn't get enough votes or have more votes than they need if their uh, voters get their second choice votes distributed after they're no longer relevant to the equation, then it's okay for a, a party to run multiple candidates and to be appealing on multiple fronts to different voters 
um, and to be specifically trying to run candidates that appeal to voters on the opposite side of the political spectrum. There's no or, longer a disadvantage to doing that. Exactly, exactly. And you're absolutely right. If you can't go to a system, if you can't do the political lifting of going to a system where it's not first past the post, uh, the political lifting for open primaries is much lighter. Mm-hmm. But yes, you're absolutely right. Primaries are stupid. I mean, let's just lay it out there. There's no good reason to have primaries when we can have such better general voting uh, methodologies. Especially since the primaries are really, I think a, lo- a lot of people don't realize that if you well, don't vote in the spring, don't realize you're not what voting. parties are. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't realize that parties are have sort of a, a tenuous relationship with the uh, the federal government and and that they are in fact just corporations and they make their own rules and and frankly they, they can choose they could have an entire uh, primary and then in the end just choose to endorse another candidate if they wanted to that's perfectly legal um, they don't because that would not go well, but they're not really a part of the system. Well, that's go ahead, Joe. So uh, I've never, I have not ever heard that. So then what is, have the primaries always existed and what has been the purpose of it then? Not, they haven't always existed the way they look now. That's for sure. And I don't think they've always existed in general. I don't know. Let me see. Maybe Google knows when the first primaries were, but I can tell you this before Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Casey. Oh, I was I was just going to say, uh, this was definitely not um, in, remotely what was in town, intended by the founding fathers who designed the electoral system, this idea of, in fact, some of the motivations for, for the electoral college were to try to avoid the dominance of party politics by taking it out of, that was one of the advantages that's discussed in, in um, letters between the founding fathers of making it not a direct democracy was trying to eliminate the role of parties. Um, but obviously that didn't work. And in fact, any sort of first past the post system, um, these are, are just power structures that are going to naturally arise from the fact that people have to vote strategically. Yeah. yeah. That's absolutely true. So before the 1960s, I know the Democrats changed it in 1968 when they had that crazy election, I mean crazy convention in Chicago, was rioting and whatnot. Anyway, before that, um, primaries didn't really have any relation to who the the presidential candidate was uh, when they existed at all. Sometimes they're just like, what do you guys think? Oh, that's nice. Don't really care because who wound up making the choices were the delegates and the delegates were the political bosses and, and big wigs and people of influence from those states. So in order to become the presidential candidate for a party, what you had to do is you had to glad hand governors and, you know, state representatives and senators or whatever, what have you, and um, party bosses and big donors and whatnot. And those were the people that wound up mattering. Um, but after 68, when uh, the Democratic Party chose somebody 
that the voters did not want and basically the voters revolted, that's where you got the systems we have more like today. Then I think the Republicans did that shortly thereafter because they didn't want to go down that same path. Um, however, the Democrats, for instance, left themselves an out with the superdelegates, and that's essentially what superdelegates are. They're not really tied to anything. They're just like, you know, we're the party elders, so we have a lot of say in pool. And um, that almost almost wrecked the, the Democratic nominating process. I shouldn't say almost. There was some thought that it would wreck the Democratic nominating process. So essentially, primaries are a big farce. Yes. Well, they're they're, they're, they're run session. by the parties, not by the elections. They're, yeah, people, they're a big they're a big cheerleading session, right? Well, they're a they're a big um, they're a big poll that's run by a corporation. That's all they are. It's it's a it's a corporation that's polling their members to see who they're most likely to uh, vote for if they endorse them in the real election, the election that that has legal weight. So what's the point of, I mean, like, what is there any point to even voting in the primaries? Absolutely. The primaries determine, most elections are determined in the primaries, not the general election. So basically, the parties have moved the power election from, as Casey put it, the real election, to the primaries, which they control. So they, they've, rested, they've rested the control from the people and put it in the hands of party leaders. Hmm kind of annoying to know that (laughs) yeah and that's why electoral reform is important but the thing is you didn't even realize that was happening and so you had no reason to be like yeah i think this is important i guess i assumed it was just always part of the process but yeah well there's there's not a lot of political incentive for the major political powers to inform the electorate that the system is as screwed up as it is because they benefit from it the first presidential primary was in 1920 it's not even 100 years old yet uh oh. Did we lose Andrew? I think we lost Andrew. Oh, it sounded like it was going to be interesting. I know. It really <laughs> did. You, you guys can't hear me? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, now we can hear you. I said, the, said f- the first The first something. presidential primary was in 1920. It's not even 100 years old yet. Huh. So, Jim. Been bamboozled. You, how, do you, how do you feel about all this as, as one who, you, you've, like you said, it feels like, you know, we've, the system has been has worked out well for us. Well, I think it, it's just, uh, I, I learned a lot tonight. I can just tell you that. So I have a lot more to, to, uh, read up on because it interests me and it's, it's, uh, it doesn't surprise me at all to think that there, what there's corruption or there's, there's uh, <laughs> power. <laughs> Wait, yeah. what? Yeah. So it, it, I expect it. It's part of how it goes. I, you know, I think it's the same, you know, I'll make this a summary statement looking at the clock here, but uh, it's the same thing, like my, my opinion with the hospital care. Uh, you know, I'm so thankful to be in a nation where I have it available to me. And, I, I, you know, at the same time, I see that there's plenty of, of opportunities there. I feel, you know, really fortunate to live in a country where we have, a, a, you know, a, a, a decent system. I, you know, as soon as uh, we get a better one, I say, let's let's adopt it. But I haven't I haven't seen a better one. So, but you know, it, I'm I'm happy with certain elements of it. But I know there's so much work to do. The, you know, we just keep uncovering 
different things about, you know, people are manipulating it. Well, surprise, surprise. But hmm. Bas basically, we we can't keep the laws. Uh, we can't keep updating the laws as fast as people can find loopholes. Right. Yeah. But eventually, there's so many loopholes. We have to do something. Yeah. And the so let's can, can we move move the topic to um like what Jim was talking about a little bit about like the the campaigning before I mean we're kind of there with I, the primaries I, but I want to make one real brief statement if I may all right you before we leave seconds. the topic okay that's fine <laughs> one of the biggest things when it comes to gerrymandering one of the biggest reasons that that matters now is because before computers and algorithms it was pretty much a guess and check game and so you can only be so efficient but mm. uh, with very good databases on who votes which way and where they live and what their preferences are and extending those things. Like once you know how somebody votes, you can say how somebody like them almost certainly votes. And when you can do that and you can use computers to draw, to optimize the maps, you suddenly get very, very, very imbalanced maps. And Republicans held a lot of state legislatures in 2010 and after the census, they there was a groundswell <laughs> it wasn't a real groundswell of of support for republicans via gerrymandering and so that's why suddenly it's like oh wow this tool just got like a lot more potent and it's really really dangerous now and to be clear if the democrats had control at the time they would have done it too and i say that as a registered democrat it's not absolutely it's it's not a a republican problem it's a problem with the system the Republicans were problem. the Republicans were fortuitous in the fact that the te technology arrived when they were in power. Right, exactly. So, so is this, yeah. is this a little bit of what uh, Elon Musk has in mind in his fear of AI? Um, it's not really AI. The computers weren't making the decisions. The computers were able to do much more complex math quickly enough to be effective. So it, it it wasn't it wasn't like a deep learning neural network or anything like that. Although one could easily argue that by the 2020 census and the redrawing times, that might even compound the effect further. Oh, if, almost certainly. Uh, I, I is, would be. I, I would. Which I is a thought I hadn't had, and now I'm 100 percent chance that that's <laughs> going to have a huge impact on um, the efficiency of gerrymandering. Is is the huge advance in artificial intelligence and specifically on problems like this where it's about optimizing um a problem with a ton of um a ton of inputs and coming up with a heuristic rather than a, a specific procedure for how to uh how to optimize um a problem like this this is exactly where uh neural networks shine and so I would be very, very surprised if we get to 2020 and that's not at the forefront of the conversation. And that is actually like, I hadn't had that thought and now I'm terrified. Like that's really scary. <laughs> anyway, if we can, Joe, please roll this conversation onto money in <laughs> politics. Yeah. That's, that's, that was interesting to hear you guys talk about that. Um, yeah, so I mean, part of part of the election, it, at least in many people's minds, and so maybe we can be proven wrong here or or, or not, 
is that you can essentially, you know, the more money in general you throw towards an election um, tends to have a pretty substantial influence on that election and kind of, and also, you know, we're talking about where you put your funds and which states and all that stuff. So um, I'm curious on, on the thoughts on whether it does matter and then uh, how it could, should potentially be changed. You got to pick somebody to go first, Joe. All right, Jim, we haven't heard much from you. Do you want to, you want to open up? Um, yeah. So basically, um, I could just tell you that I was really, I, and I know there's so much behind how Donald Trump, you know, the, that he's taking loans and whatever. I don't care. I think the, the point that was being made was that there's no, there's no, nobody's buying my way into this, this position. I'm doing it myself. So, you know, obviously this is a wealthy individual, but I was really, that impressed me. That was definitely something that I, I, I liked. So I, I think we, we can spend the money to do whatever we want. And, you know, and this person spent their money and, and ran and took some risks. And, you know, maybe if it didn't work out, would file bankruptcy on, you know, <laughs> this is, this is a, it's a, it's an option. So, but I, I think, uh, I don't know. I don't have a lot of, I, a lot of time with it. So. I don't have very strong opinions with it either. Okay. All right. Casey? To to his credit, or maybe to his his campaign's credit, I think President Trump did a really uh, very effectively um, used that uh, the campaign funding element um, messaging to, I think a lot of people were swayed by that. I think that that was very effective. Um, The way that that was framed, uh, especially coming off of the Democratic primary, where you saw such a large disparity between the how Bernie Sanders was getting his donations and where uh, Hillary Clinton was getting her donations. I thought that was, it was very effective to uh, zoom in on that. Um, and I... As far as how to fix it, that I don't know. Um, you know, I think it's uh, there are there are certain things that seem like no brainers. Like it seems, I think, to a lot of people, a no brainer that the the Citizens United decision in two thousand ten was problematic. Um, what was that decision? That was that um, basically that. Uh, money counts as uh, freedom of speech. Political campaign donations count as speech, a uh, form of speech. And so uh, corporations can't be, um, there, are, there are restrictions on how the government can rein in certain types of corporations' campaign funding. And as a result, um, you've got a, a channel through which anyone can basically give any sum of money to a candidate uh, if you just go through the right channels. To a and campaign. The theory, yeah, and the theory is that companies can essentially buy out a a candidate, correct? Like, I mean, that's the that's the 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 thing that people worry about. It's not a it's not a theory. It's happened in the past. It's actually been the oddity saying, that candidates haven't been beholden to someone with money, mm-hmm. right? 
I'm saying that was, and I think the they didn't have to disclose any of that, correct, Casey, in that decision, if I remember correctly. If you give it to a what is it, five hundred one C? Is that what it is? Yeah. There's a certain type of charitable. Yeah, the the political action committee, the charitable political action committees do not have to reveal who their donors are, um, and they can they can campaign on behalf of anyone with or well without their permission. They're just not allowed to coordinate with the campaign, and coordinating with the campaign is so vaguely defined. That what happens in reality is that campaigns will drop a YouTube video and then, oh, magically, the super PACs that are backing them pick it all up and, you know, a a $10,000 YouTube video now gets a $10 million airplay, but it wasn't coordination. So that's, that's the way it winds up working is that the money isn't technically under control of the campaign or the candidate, but effectively they can do whatever they want with it. And I've heard We've got a very co- weird system. Yeah, I've heard that other countries, there are you're required at the, at the very least to provide all your donors. Like it's it's a purely transparent system. I guess is a better way to say it, where we know where the money came from, we know where the money's going, and we know we can see we can trace that that stuff. Is that am I mistaken in my understanding on on that? If you give money directly to a candidate, uh, you're limited in how much you can give, and you're limited. And you have to reveal, they have to reveal that you gave the money to them. Does that make sense? So in, yeah. the, in, in that very narrow setting, that is true in America. However, it's because of the 501Cs who are allowed to do whatever they want with dark money and do not have to reveal their donors or even their owners. They don't have to reveal who it is that's running the political action committee. Right. Um, let alone their donors, um, and and they're able to support whomever or whatever issue because a lot of them are issue packs too, rather than candidate packs. They want um, that effectively puts a whole a, an enormous second stage of financing that's puts not the wealthy accountable. In power. Yeah. Yes. Potentially. So that's yes. so my, that was my that's my question though. I feel like I've heard of other countries that the the money the money can't be dark. Like everything is is transparent and not just the direct giving. Well, well, one they, option is to have the the election funded by the government, and there are there are certainly uh, pros and cons to that. Um, it's the the big con, of course, is that you're you're giving um, the control uh, to change the government in the hands of the people who would be uh, <laughs> affected. Um, but There's of course, a self-interest the good thing, is the status quo. Right. But uh, you can set up, um, you can you can have a hybrid solution where there are certain um, systems in place that uh, allow for funding the election while while not having complete control over it. Um, so it's one solution. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, another potential solution. Um, so I think along with what Casey is saying is that in those situations, when you give money to a campaign, you can't give it to a campaign. You have to give it to campaigning. Does that make sense? Like 
I can't give money to Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. I have to give money to the 2016 presidential campaign system, and they will distribute the money evenly between the candidates. Okay. And so then you have to decide, you know, when is a candidate real enough to get money and when is one just kind of a joke just to see if they can get a piece of the pie. So then you create hurdles to entrance, which not that America doesn't have, but some other countries have much larger ones, which really irritates small and up-and-coming parties because even if they have a reasonable, uh, a reasonably sizable uh, uh, number of people that are willing to vote for them, sometimes they don't meet certain kind of bizarre thresholds in order to get the funding, and without the funding, you can't really be a real candidate. Another idea, so, another okay. idea is actually to increase the amount of money in politics. Um, I know we had talked about this a little while ago, but we weren't recording. Um, and I, I heard, a, I think it was a, a marketing executive from Coca-Cola or Pepsi, one of those two, talking about how, you know, the decision between Coke and Pepsi is a decision that on average has something like $20 billion per year spent on it. But the decision between a Republican or a Democratic president has... I, th- I think that the total spending in the last in the 2016 election, which that involves all levels, was like two billion. Um, so that's like an order of magnitude more money put into helping you decide Coke or Pepsi than the leader of the free world and the rest of the elected positions. So his argument was, if we had as much, if we spent as much money informing people about the issues and the elect in the in the um, candidates, as we do informing them about their consumer choices, people would make much better choices, which is an interesting idea. But then you have to you have to find some way to get accurate information out there via advertising, which I think we all know is difficult. Mm. What you yeah. need is some sort of some sort of institution that isn't government owned, whose sole purpose is disseminating information to the electorate. <laughs> not I mean, not is, just disseminating. But that assumes so much. Like, like there is, I think we're we live in a day and age now that we think that if people just have more information, then then they'll be able to make better choices, which isn't true. I mean, I I witness it every day in my job that people know if they're if they don't pay their electric bill, their electric will get it shut off. Some they know people, the information. Some people they, don't make better choices. If nobody but, knew the results of not paying their electric bill, a lot more people would make poor choices. Does that make right, sense? But I, but I say, but um, my point is, throwing more information at it doesn't doesn't guarantee solving the problem, and it doesn't guarantee that it'll even get better. It does guarantee that people won't have excuses. Eh, when so, somebody gets their power shut you. off, <laughs> when someone gets their power shut off, does anybody say, "Oh, they didn't know that was going to happen"? Every single time. No, no, no. Not the person who's getting their power shut off. Somebody else. Does somebody oh, look at them yes. and say, really? Yes. That's what I mean. Like, so I a third, a third party. So somebody's getting their power shut off, and you as the power shutter offer guy are standing there. Somebody walking by on the street says, oh, that's so unfair. I can't believe they got their power unplugged. They're yep. not like, why didn't you pay your electric bill? Nope. They're like, oh, no, I don't think they knew. I'm like, it doesn't matter, <laughs> but that's that that's that's neither here nor there. But I'm that's my point. My point is that I've 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 seen information pushed to a lot of people that and yes, now they have no excuse, but it doesn't mean anything's changed in their life. Well, this is I mean, right now is a pretty great example 
example of how more information doesn't necessarily mean better informed voters. I, we literally have the sum of all human knowledge at our fingertips, um, and we are increasingly uh, misinformed about what's going on politically. Only if you're signed up to all those journals that have paywalls. For the rest of us, for the rest of us, we don't quite have all human knowledge. Well, you got Wikipedia. I mean that. Yeah, which is editable by anyone, including the president. So, <laughs> I did have somebody change a Wikipedia article on me once, and it was changed by the time he, I, he, he had linked to it and sent it back. So, there's that. Um, so, then a question for you: Then, like, why not keep the system the way it is? Um, and just make everything fully transparent. Because the most influential people with the money and the power don't want that. Okay. It's a, it and 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 fully transparent is a difficult standard because it's not clear when <laughs> it's not clear when you're fully transparent and what is a political advertisement. You know, if I if I get on television and I say vote for Joe Wanger for counselor, that's clearly political. But if I get on television and I say something like, kids these days just don't respect their elders, is that a political statement? Because it might not be, it might just be my opinion, but if some candidate is out there being like, vote for me, I'll put those kids who don't respect their elders in their place, all of a sudden it is a political advertisement. And who's like going around checking you know, what's a political advertisement and what isn't? The other thing to consider is that transparency isn't necessary. Uh, that's not the panacea for um, all election problems. That's that helps a lot of campaign finance issues. But if we go back to just how the the voting works, we c if every single voter were perfectly informed on how first past the post works and how the primaries work and how the electoral college works, there would still be the same um, forces acting on the electorate that split it into an inevitable two-party system. In fact, those forces would be even stronger because the thing that, that causes that two-party split is voters who know that they have to vote strategically in order to keep the candidate they like least out of office. Okay. I understand that. I guess I'm, I, I'm talking more, I'm almost exclusively talking about the money side of it. Like for me, if I know, if I can see that Coca-Cola gave such and such amount of money to, you know, even if they go through a company who's run by the CEO of Coca-Cola <laughs> to this candidate and I don't like Coca-Cola or anything they stand for, like, I feel like that's going to, that's going to, it's going to impact, it would impact things. But you're actually coming back to the same problem you pointed out previously, People have to make changes based on that information. So one, they have to find the information or the information has to be given to them. Some, some, as Casey put it, how, how'd you say it? Third party dispenser of information. <laughs> yeah, something, something like a, we need like a, a fourth Oversight. estate that would just be about. Uh, <laughs> I was waiting for you to say that, Casey. Reporting what's going on in the world. I don't know. Just then, you, then you have to get into accuracy. Anyway, we should have a fourth. We should have a fourth episode about the state of the media because, frankly, it is a political institution. Anywho, um, I think Jim would agree with you on that. I don't think anybody would disagree with me on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That was easy. Yeah. And huh. 
I don't think anyone who honestly looks at the state of the American media landscape would say that media inherently has no political influence or function. I think right now the political media arguably has more political weight than at least two out of three branches of government. I would totally agree with you. I would totally yeah, agree well, with you. Anyway. Maybe, maybe we'll a- bring, bring you guys back and talk about that another time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, uh, let's, let's go ahead and close off with our question that we talked about earlier. Um, when you guys for the 2016 election voted, uh, what were the things that were on your mind and the reasons why you voted for your candidate? You don't have to say your candidate if you don't want to. Let's start with uh, let's uh, let's mix it up. Let's start with uh, let's start with Casey. Sure. Well, I'll I'll, I'll say the candidates' names because it'll make the I think make it make more sense. Um, so I actually voted for Sanders in the Democratic primary, even though um, my views really lined up uh, much more with Clinton, and I voted for Clinton in the. Uh, general election and generally speaking I think that she was uh, objectively the most qualified and experienced and the views that uh, she ran on were um, the closest to mine of any candidate Uh, and I I really liked Clinton because she was a moderate Um, and I know that was something that, that she ended up having to like feeling she had to back away from um, given the dynamic of the Democratic primary, but uh, that was what what uh, that was why I went with Clinton in the general was because I, I think of Clinton's largely a, a moderate centrist candidate, and and that aligns with my ideology. So, real quick, if we can, um, would you, Andrew or Jim, do you guys would you agree that that at least from your perception, that Clinton would be considered a, a moderate candidate? And why? You first, Jim. <laughs> um, no, I, I, um, I do not think she'd be considered moderate, but I can see how it, she could be seen that way. I don't personally see her that way, but it's not hard to identify with some, you know, some of the ideas that would put her in that, that position. I just think that it's from from my point of view, it's it's about um, just keeping government small. Uh, I, I, this is getting the government out of the things that the government shouldn't be involved with. So there, it's very difficult to find uh, anybody, Republican or Democrat, uh, that would feel that way. I think libertarianism would be the closest thing, but it's just. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know how long you wanted me to go off on that, but basically, I, I don't, I don't see her as as centrist or, yeah. Okay, uh, Andrew, did you want to answer that one? I'm just having trying to have some discussion here. Sure. Um, I don't know if I'd use the word moderate for her. I would use probably say that she was a very status quo candidate, which sometimes looks very moderate, if that makes sense. Um, she, so one of the, I did not vote for her. And one of the main reasons I did not was because I felt she was just a little, uh, Casey call said she had experience. I felt she was a little too soaked in the DC culture. Um, 
a little, how shall I put it? All too often, she appeared to be furthering her own ambitions, not working for the country. And I will readily admit that I have a distorted view of her actions and motivations because it has been filtered through the fourth estate. And while I try to get a diverse set of opinions, uh, it's they all filter it to some degree or, or, or another. And ultimately, I felt she was... Um, too interested in what she could gain and not interested in how she could uh, improve the nation. Um, And that's why I don't think I see her as a moderate in the sense that she's between the left and the right. Um, I would agree she's certainly not as far left as she could be, but I kind of view socialism and fascism as two extremes that no one should be comparing themselves to. I mean... (laughs) You can call anybody a moderate when you put them against a Nazi, right? Or you can call anybody a moderate if you put them against Stalin. So, and I'm not I'm not saying Hillary is Stalin or that Trump is Hitler or a Nazi. I'm not at all saying that. What I'm saying is I think we need to lop off the extreme edges and stop saying, well, look, I'm moderate. I'm not like that because that's that's a little bit of a straw man argument. So in the range of realistic political spectrum, I would say she was a moderate Democrat. You know, if you draw a line right down the middle, I would say she was in the middle of the left side, um, where to me, a moderate is in the middle of the middle. Um, That's true. I, I, I misspoke. I, th- that is what I meant. She's, she's a moderate Democrat, but she is definitely a Democrat. Yeah. Okay. okay. I can agree with that. She's, I would certainly agree. She's a moderate Democrat. She's not, you know, she's, she's not pushing for a lot of really radical changes the way some Democrats are. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. All right. Anything else you wanted to add to that, Casey? Or to respond to? I, I'd actually, I, I'd like to ask. Um, so, Jim, one of the things you you said that caught my ear was that the the overriding um, motivation for you was uh, limiting the role of government, smaller governments, what it's all about. Uh, there's a lot of theorizing on the left um, during the Republican primary and right after the Republican primary that um, a lot of voters who voted for Trump did so because it's kind of like throwing a grenade into the political system and just like hoping everything falls apart so we can pick up and try again. Is that a sentiment that you relate to at all? Or do you think that that's sort of a, a, a fantasy on the left that we're projecting onto Trump voters? Uh, I don't think that's a fantasy at all. I think that's a very, you know, I can't, I can't even begin to speak to percentages of voters that that could apply to, but absolutely. I mean, there's a portion of what my response was going to be that included that is just, you know, it's just the, the, it's got to change. We've, we've got, you know, it's getting old. We have a lot of old systems and a lot of old ways of doing things and, one thing that really inspires me is the disruptors, and uh, you just see it happening on every front. So when somebody comes in that so uh, looks so different and seems to, you know, it, it, there was some real integrity in the message that he's been delivering, the political message uh, for my candidate, uh, because, it, you know, you, you see the same things recorded back in 19, I think it was 93 on Donahue. 
that was recorded, uh, you know, he's still saying the same things. And I just, there's something to me about a person who has, you know, holds these opinions, you know, takes them through the fire for 20 years and then, and then still kind of maintains them, especially if they, they sort of resonate with, with an individual. But, um, yeah, I, I just think there's no way that's a fantasy to answer your question directly. No, I, I, there's a definite, you know, the drain, the swamp, you know, it was a, a popular term, you know, phrased during the election, but I think I'm just fed up. I honestly, uh, and I don't have, I, I'm not really, um, uh, I, I'm not one of the people that is, I'm not in politics. So I just want to be the, I think to do my job, the best I can do as a citizen of the United States is to be involved as much as I can be involved to make right decision, you know, learn about it, educate and, and always read the, you know, somebody who's opposing point of view, uh, you, you always read it, always, always understand it, get to know it because that, that's the only way we can, we can understand one another. I want to plug a really good book again, uh, hit refresh. Satya Nadella just released his, uh, his book. It was a collaboration, but called hit refresh. And what the thing that I really stood out to me is this book, the whole book, you know, through all the different things he's, he's talking through, um, it, it was just all about empathy. And, uh, I would love to see more empathy in the world. He, he summarized it perfectly in so many different ways, but, uh, if we're being empathetic, we're, we're not we're not going to be so prideful and and uh, belligerent with our own our own stance. We're going to be a little bit more willing to listen to someone else's ideas and and be able to take that information and still vote our conscience, vote our principles and our values. But but the dialogue's got to go. So I just I want a disruptor, just like uh, we're seeing in all these other arenas of life. I want somebody to disrupt the political system. And Donald Trump has been absolutely perfect so far. Well, he certainly got us talking about a lot of important conversations. I'll give him that. Yeah. He's also forced the Congress to take on some of the duties they've shirked to the president over the last 70 years. We'll see if, see if that is a good idea or not, but it's interesting. (laughs) (laughs) So Jim, did you have anything else? Sorry, go ahead, Casey. Oh, well, I was speaking to to Jim's point. I think one of the big failures of, of the Democrats and in their messaging in, in opposing Trump was vilifying Trump voters because inevitably if, if the message you're, you're trying to, project is I think that there was there was a lot of messaging that was about Trump being dangerous and Trump being destructive and Trump being uh, a political imbecile and a lot of that was the target from the left and I don't think there was a, a full understanding that 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 wasn't actually working in their favor to cast that was Trump. working in his favor. Right, they're, they're exactly. going, heck yeah, we want that guy. <laughs> like, oh, that's Trump. That's who I'm voting for. Yeehaw! No, sorry. <laughs> right, and then to t- the, so then to to have that as the framing, and then on top of that to be vilifying um, 
Trump voters to say, well, if you voted for Trump, it's because you're racist or you're sexist or you're um, xenophobic. Well, yeah. I think very naturally the the reaction of Trump voters like Jim, who just wanted something to change and and you know wanted to to play a wild card, and um, they're seeing. I mean, they know that they're not bad people, um, and so it immediately destroys any any credibility that they would have had in their messaging in in trying to describe what I, I consider to be very um, genuine dangers coming from the president. Um, but what, we don't have an effective way to communicate that across the aisle because I think so much of the uh, political establishment and political media on the left has destroyed their credibility with conservatives not i'm not even speaking to the accuracy of information but just in in the way that they've framed things morally they've destroyed their credibility anybody's ability to hold the moral high ground has been removed since the introduction of relativism i shouldn't say the introduction the ascendancy of relativism ever since what's true for you doesn't have to be true for me moral high ground has become unattainable and that has worked for the left for a while, but the tables have been turned on them and they tried to reclaim it. Um, but really it was just relativism coming home to roost and suddenly they didn't like it. And I, I think, I hope there's more empathy, as Jim was pointing out, towards some of us who have been rejecting relativism for a long time and being told that, you know, we're haters and intolerant for rejecting relativism, only to be find out now that those same people who told us that <laughs> turn out to be just as hateful and intolerant of somebody's relativism that they don't like. <laughs> so, Jim, did you have anything else you wanted to add to, like, the as you went into the 2016 election? And, and... No, I, no I, I, don't, I don't think so. Okay. How about you, Andrew? Uh, I will gladly say which candidate I voted for. I voted for Gary Johnson. Um, I took one look at Hillary Clinton, and she was just too much a part of the machine. Um, and I felt enough of the desire for change that I really couldn't see voting for her as a practical solution. Uh, I said before she was just too status quo, a little too baked in the goop, the mire, the tar that is the D.C., system and culture and ambition. And I understand you have to be ambitious to make it to those levels, but do you have to be so blatant about it and proud of it? Um, so I couldn't vote for Hillary. And I took one look at Trump and realized he's a bombastic demagogue. And frankly, I couldn't, I couldn't hold my nose and vote for him, even though I'm a registered Republican. He's just too hateful. I mean, there, there are too many things that I say that I stand for that he would like to see go up in flames. So I just, I, I couldn't do it. One, like for instance, I think immigration is wonderful. I would love to see at least 1% of the population of our country immigrating each year, which would be about three and a half million people a year right now. And that is, you know, three times what Germany left in from Syria, for instance. We could we could take in a lot of refugees at that rate, and I don't think 1% is all that high. Anyway, I couldn't vote for Trump. 
Um, Gary Johnson, while there's a lot of things I disagreed with him on, a lot of things, and almost all of them are social, uh, simply because he's too permissive for my tastes, um, I could get behind the idea of, you know, if we're going to go down the path of um, living in a country that is run um, centrally, we might as well push as much power down the chain as possible. And rather than aggregate the power in as high a point as possible, which has been the trend for the last hundred years or so, be uh, probably even longer than that, but Teddy Roosevelt really kicked it off with his bully pulpit. Um, rather than you know accelerate and continue that trend, rather push the power down as low as possible. Um, you know, reward personal responsibility as much as possible. And now I, I am by no means a libertarian, especially, you know, a dyed-in-the-wool libertarian that wants to get th- rid of things like police departments and, you know, vehicle registrations and driver's licenses, which are, you know, some core tenets of hardcore libertarianism. I think that's a bit nuts. I don't think in, I don't think we can live in a, you know, a world full of anarchy and anything that resembles a civilization. Um, but I am okay with things like legalizing pot because, frankly, I think the war on drugs has caused more more problems than the drugs themselves ever were going to or could have. So that's that's where I wound up. And I went to a website called um, uh, balancedrebellion.com. I don't no idea if it's still available or what. But what you could do is you could say who you'd vote for if you weren't going to vote for a third party, and they would match you up with somebody on the other side. So I didn't throw away my vote. So I would have voted for Hillary if I couldn't have voted third party. So somebody who would have voted for Trump if they couldn't vote for third party uh, also did not vote. So I didn't help either candidate by voting third party. Hmm. I any may thoughts? have overthought it. <laughs> any uh, any thoughts from Jim or Casey? Well, I, I will say, so I actually... I've actually grown more confident in uh, my views on Clinton's uh, qualifications for the presidency over the last year. Actually, I, I still feel very confident that um, she would have been the best equipped uh, by far to be president. And I still, you know, I would I would vote the same today. But at the same time, I, I have a lot of sympathy for those who felt that they couldn't vote for her. Um, I, I, I don't think now I, I do think that there, there absolutely was an element of, of um, th- so the, when talking about the, the 2016 election, uh, it's, there are a lot of factors. And I think one of the, one of the problems in the way it's been covered is people try to find one thing and, and blame uh, Clinton's loss on that, that, one thing um and it was a bunch of things that that played into it yes sexism was a part of it in in some ways and um the comey letter was an element and the way that the media covered clinton versus trump was a huge element but there was also shifting political forces and um there was really you know genuine um genuine sentiments from a lot of portions of the country that they weren't being heard and that uh, we need to shake things up and, and, you know, if nothing else, get 
people's attention, grab them by the neck and say, hey, you know, we're still here. We have stuff to say, too. So I, I am, you know, I, I, I'm not uh, uh, anti-establishment by, by any stretch of the imagination. And I still feel uh, I would still confidently vote for Clinton. But I absolutely understand why a lot of people didn't feel that way. And I, and I understand why a lot of why I felt compelled to vote for Clinton probably was related to the fact that I'm doing okay and not everyone is. How about you, Joe? Who'd you vote for and why? Well, um, I did vote for, I actually voted for Trump in the primaries. Um, and then wound up voting for Gary Johnson uh, in in the general election and see the four of us should be <laughs> the nation's electoral college. Sorry, so, I just so for me in the beginning I was with Jim. I wanted I wanted a, a disruptor when it came to to Trump, and he was clearly um, the person for that. Uh, I liked the fact that he was um, not in the in the political sphere. Um, as much and I think I think that that was I, I looked at it as like okay this can, this has the potential to be very refreshing and I know that he had said some things that were kind of insensitive at the time but I, I hadn't done a I, I felt like they were overplayed um, and and over overemphasized and then um, I felt like once the general, uh, like once the, he was like, you know, the Republican Party um, guy, he kicked it into high gear with, with his belligerence. And um, for me, in the end, it came down to, it was funny that on the, the third uh, debate, I'm, I'm, I think I posted right before the debate and it was like, if Trump comes out here and he doesn't attack Hillary once, and he just shirks off uh, anything that she says that's that's negative towards him. I was like, I think he's a strong candidate, even with some of the the things that that had come out. And he came out, he came out, uh, and he was super defensive anytime anything negative was said towards him, and um, came out swinging. And but not in a not in a hey, this is pol- this is my policy. This is what I'm going to do. It was all it was all rhetoric, and in the end, for me, that's what that's what sold it um, to not vote for him. And and from the get go, I, I knew I couldn't vote for Hillary because Hillary was just um, like it's funny. It's funny that to hear your perspective, Casey. Um, because not funny that you have that, but it's just I hadn't considered that people would look at um, her being just uh, bathed in the political realm as um, as qualifications, like, you know, I guess when I look at it from a standpoint of, of like a job application, you're right. Like all of her qualifications were, were totally there, but yet I feel like she would have been the the wrong person for the job, um, in a lot of different ways. And, and we would just be getting more, more of the same. Um, and, and I don't know that I was okay with that. And, in the end, for me, similar. I I, I wanted to just say ditto after all the stuff that Andrew said. <laughs> um, we had very similar similar views. Gary Johnson, even though I disagreed with him on many of, like the social issues, there were there were other things that 
I felt like I felt like he was he was going to be able to move towards move move things towards more of a a small government um, and the government not having oversight on things that they don't have any business having and and the more and at the time I hadn't done a ton of research on the war on drugs but the more I've done uh, the research on it I think it has had immensely terrible effects on our society and um, and we're finding especially now we're finding the physical um, the physical ramifications on, on the drugs that they've hit the most are, are it, it's it's kind of ridiculous um, like weed has is not a gateway drug um, it doesn't have any kind of addictive qualities as you look into the science behind it and like sugar is actually more more addictive and potentially fatal for you than than weed is and um yeah and the way that we've incentivized police officers to try and find drugs is, has had other other impacts in my opinion um from what I've from what I've seen and so for me, in the end, it was I. I can't vote for the other two, and I didn't feel like I did the balanced rebellion thing, and didn't feel like I was throwing my vote away, and I still don't. And uh, I would, I would stand by it with that decision with a lot of caveats, because um, for me, what what it's come down to for most people is, are you um, okay with abortion and gay marriage? And if you if you are, you need to vote Democrat. If you're not, um, you need to vote Republican. And if you um, vote for anybody that disagrees with your uh, disagrees with those values. You're a terrible person, <laughs> and uh, that's the part that has frustrated me most with with this election is that um, we can't have nuanced discussion. Um, but apparently we can because we just had one, and it's been it it was fantastic for me to listen to and be a part of. Agreed. Same. Hey, I and I would realize- say, you guys, it sounds like even though we're so different, uh, seemingly different, as we've learned through this pod, th- these recordings, but uh, it sounds like we share a common influence. And I would suggest that would be Milton Friedman, because a lot of the things you and, you and Andrew were just kind of amening together, they, they, they trickle down from the Friedman-esque type thinking. Thomas Sowell, Hoover Institute, no, nobody. No, I don't know who you. Well, mean. just to like wrap things back around to where we started, uh, a reminder that Milton Friedman was an advocate for the universal basic income that we discussed in the first. <laughs> really? Yeah. Boom. He was. He's Chicago school, right? Or is he Austrian? Anybody? School of Economics? I don't know. You know, this is why we invented the internet. Um, <laughs> I did realize I didn't say who I voted for in the primaries. I really wanted to go with Kasich, but he had dropped out like three days before the Pennsylvania primary. So I held my nose and voted Cruz, even though I couldn't stand somebody who wanted to get rid of the, the Federal Reserve. But it was either the only choices I had were between him and Trump at that point in time and I, as a Republican, uh, registered Republican. So just for full disclosure... Cool. Well, thank you guys. I, I, I've, I've absolutely loved this. These have definitely been, um, been top podcasts for me to be able to be a part of this discussion. I, I think Andrew and I started out a whole bunch of episodes ago, hoping that at some point we could get into some politics and some debate. And, um, I couldn't have asked for, for anything better. 
Because even though we may not all see eye to eye, we were able to talk about it without needing feeling the need to punch each other in the face. At least I didn't feel like I needed to punch anybody. Um, so, yeah. I was able to resist the temptation. Casey <laughs> is uh, an individual I've never met. I don't know anything about you. I think we were kind of um, kind of brought into this this with because we may have been two people with differing points of views. Uh, oh yeah, but, they were explicitly trying to pit us against each other. Yeah, yeah. this was like a gladiator <laughs> match, right? But we both also thought that you were reasonable people and wouldn't just be like, no. Yes. Well, the yeah, thing that, that is very yeah, true. I, I want to say though that is is you know biggest. Uh, hopefully, your takeaway, Casey, is be encouraged because your ability to research a topic and speak when you know something succinctly to a point, like it, it's outstanding. It, it's something that anybody can listen to when, when it's so obvious that you've done the research and that you, you know, and, and you don't do that for topics you haven't. So I think that that's something that it, it, it's, uh, you could challenge me on my most staunch stand, you know, position, because I think if you've done enough research on it, that you, you're going to get me thinking. And I, I, that's what I've appreciated the most out of the last, uh, you know, the three recordings, just that, 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 Game changer, and, and not everybody is that way. Too many people are interested in just uh, the rhetoric and blasting out talking points. But this was a conversation among four individuals who, you know, Andrew, you came in with so many different things as well that it, it just it shows the immense amount of research. I mean, I, I know I was backing off. Joe was probably, you know, taking notes and then he'll have his, his paper for us by the end of the year. But <laughs> <laughs> I had to back away because I just have no, you guys just obviously know so much more about the subject than I do, but I I'm sad to see it go. I do. Uh, I want to thank everybody for the invite, for the time and for the real opportunity and discussion. That was excellent. I really appreciate hearing that. That is, that is very encouraging. Cause I think there's the, the, the common wisdom right now is that it doesn't matter how much you inform people they're they're never going to change their minds and i i hope that's not true I, I i hope that education is still a silver bullet i think you did just make the assumption there that if you educated jim enough he would vote like you Which, <laughs> oh, that, yeah that's true that was that was poorly bit. that was poorly framed that's a good point but I, I what i mean is that uh education is the the silver bullet for um uh enabling community communication across the political spectrum not not for homogenizing the political spectrum <laughs> that makes a lot more sense and i yeah and I, in I think, fact i i don't think we should homogenize the political spectrum i think our, our country would be a lot weaker if we all yes. thought the same thing but i think our country would be a lot stronger if we could talk to people who didn't all think the same thing dialogue yeah. mm-hmm I think information alone isn't enough. I think experiencing it with other people, even if you disagree, um, I think that's when things change because you can hear you can hear the the, the thoughts behind the information and the the conclusions and uh, you know I mean even just today learning you know about the primaries and stuff it, it changed my perspective drastically in, in a moment. And I think we feel like if we can hand enough pamphlets out and get enough uh, advertisements in people's faces, that's what changes. But I think it's people that wind up changing other people. Isn't that what families are all about, Joe? Like when you think about it, the, the, the reason you have family that you know the same group of people, however many, for, the, you know, for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, 
the reason that's possible is because you've you've brought yourself to a place where you were committed to overlooking things that are different so that you can enjoy what's common and and enjoy you know hearing another person's story and we just we need more of that and i think that directly ties to empathy and i think there's also if i may throw in my two cents the respect factor has to be real and it has to be uh, it has to be given somewhat freely um, it also has to be earned, but I think the fact that both Casey and Jim came into this um, not knowing the other person um, actually kind of allowed for, they were able to discover the other person or at least their positions without uh, being forced to judge them. And I think all too often we're expected to judge people based on very small snippets of their positions. Uh, I'm speaking primarily from a political standpoint. And... Um, personally, I would, in a heartbeat, sit down with any any of the people who who made the presidential list for the general election in 2016, whether that be Clinton, Johnson, uh, what was the Green Party? What was her name? Stein, Jill Stein, and or Trump, or there were two other candidates whose names I can't recall. Evan McMullen. I would sit down with any of them, and I would genuinely love to hear what they have to say about a whole range of topics. And I'm afraid, I don't have any good evidence to back this up, but I'm afraid there are too many people all across the spectrum that basically say, you know, if you're not within this distance of my beliefs, you're unreasonable. And mm-hmm. I think I think that is a huge fallacy in thinking, and you're failing to respect that that person is capable of thinking for themselves and has come to a different conclusion than you. Not only unreasonable, but I think evil. I I, I think that's the, morally that's often inferior. Where the right, that's where the the political discussion goes. Is is not only saying that that this group of people is misguided, but that this group of people is morally bankrupt. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah untouchables. You know, like we're we're doing the same, the class system. Yeah, and they're the and untouchables are just whoever disagrees with you the most. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and can you oh, imagine what would happen if Rush Limbaugh, if it came out that he had lunch with Hillary Clinton? Like his career would be over in a, in a heartbeat. Yep. But like, sorry, I'm now I'm ranting about so something terrible? that's unrelated. <laughs> Probably not. But the, the the fact that the people that listened to him wouldn't be able to respect him simply because he spoke with somebody from across the spectrum. Yeah, remember the. The controversy when Chris Christie gave Obama a hug after Sandy. <laughs> I remember that. There's some good jokes that came out of that, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's it's messed up. But I think that's where these conversations come in. And I would encourage anybody listening right now to go find somebody that they disagree with, sit down, have some, have some lunch, buy them lunch. So that way they can't, they don't have any excuse. And, uh, Obviously, don't tell your friends because they'll judge you. <laughs> but uh, just have have a conversation. I think I think it starts. I think it starts there, and uh, I believe I personally believe that the that you will be better for it. So. Well, thanks again, guys. Um, we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll approach. Uh, we'll we'll talk about maybe doing some extended versions of this at some point. It all it all depends on. <laughs> 
So, it all depends right. on the ratings. If you guys bring in enough ratings and money, then we'll definitely make it happen. <laughs> enough money at this point would be like a dollar. So yeah, not a real a high bar. Let's just campaign. We'll raise it. All right. All right. Yep. <laughs> GoFundMe page. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You know, uh, it's easy to forget how much just the design of the electoral system influences the choices that people make. And I thought that was a really great conversation about some of the things we could do to, you know, change it in ways that help people make better decisions. And rather than, you know, channeling people in certain ways or or creating situations where I think we talked about how some politicians wind up picking their voters rather than the voters picking their representatives. So. I thought it turned into a great conversation. Yeah, and it's I it there's a there's a guy out there, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but he refers to this as the democratic experiment. America is like the democratic experiment. And um I think it's really interesting to see just how long the system that we have has has worked out and provided us with I mean, when you look back in the history of the United States, like we've done okay. <laughs> like Yeah, all things um, considered. <laughs> Yeah, like things should have went to crap a lot longer ago if it wasn't, a, you know, a well thought out, well designed system, which is, you know, kudos to the forefathers. <laughs> to be fair, we did have a civil war in there and there were a few presidents that were crazy or incapacitated and whatnot. So it's not like it was perfect, but the system was always able to kind of bring itself back on center. I mean, yeah. especially if you kind of leave the civil war out, especially, which is might be a little unfair, but... It always managed to bring itself back around. Yeah, no, no. And I think even just, just the fact that we can, we're in a country where we can just discuss it and talk about it, how we could change it. And we know that it's possible um, to to do that through our the system that we're talking about changing. Like, I think that's, that's, that's a good thing. I mean, that's how it should be. It should, nothing should ever be so static that, that it can't be changed and, and modified. And I think that's one of the, the, the greatest pieces of the democratic experiment that is the United States of America is that the levers for changing the way the system works are built into the system. The idea of amendments and whatnot. I mean, you think about hereditary monarchies like Europe was for, I don't know, 2,000 years, give or take. And it was very, very, very rigid. The idea that it would be anything other than a hereditary monarchy it was just like, what? No, it wouldn't. What? Why would we change that? There's no way to change that. But here we're like, you know what? Here's the way it currently works. And here are the ways you can change it. And these are the levers you pull. And these people say these things. It's different. And that's, in many ways, really radical. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's good stuff, man. All right. Well, hey, uh, you know the drill. We would love it if you'd give us a rating. Uh, if you're enjoying this, share it with some friends. If you're from Japan and one of our our Japanese listeners, you know, shoot us an email. I'd really love to know how you got connected uh, to this podcast. Um, if you have any guests, we are looking to fill some spots for our upcoming season. And we would uh, just really, really appreciate it if you would sponsor us or, or well, I guess, become one of our patrons. patrons. Does that mean they sponsor us? Am I saying that right? Yeah, I mean, I guess technically we're sponsored at that point. All right. And hey, you know what? If you give us something on Patreon, we'll advertise it. It's only a buck a month. That's a pretty good deal. <laughs> exactly. That's some of the cheapest advertising you can get. So, all right. Well, hey, we'll catch you guys next time.